Our first speaker this morning, Don Basham, has become a renowned speaker in this area. And we are, we are so happy that he chose to come and be with us again this time. God has given him extreme insight, which we need to glean from. So as he comes and speaks to us this morning, get your, your spirits ready, get your pens and pencils, and you notice you have some blank paper on one side of your folder. And let's receive Brother Basham and receive what he has for us from the Lord and rejoice in it. Brother Basham. Well, good morning, and it's good to be back in Lakeland again, even if we are in the wrong church. We'd hoped that when we were here last year, and uh, Brother Strader took me and my son out to see that magnificent building, which was just barely under roof then, he was saying that the next year we would be able to have the meetings there. Well, we just missed it by a couple of weeks, I understand. Next Sunday or the following Sunday, uh, you're to move into that building, and uh, I predict a tremendous ministry and history for our, that great church and uh, really I'm grateful to be back here this time with my wife and to have ministry again with uh, Brother Maxwell White and I who've been Brother Maxwell White he and I've been friends for many years I'm deeply in his debt for his uh, as we all are for his pioneering in this ministry he and I pastored together at the same time I say pastor together, we pastored in the same city for Toronto, Canada back in the 60s. Maxwell had been there for many years. I pastored in a denominational church from uh, 61 to 64, and that's where I first met Brother White. And in the years since, we have become great friends and have had the privilege of ministering on many occasions. It's good to be back with uh, ministering again with Fran Harrison and to be with Brother Crandall and all the rest of you. Uh, I want to give an introductory uh, lecture this morning on the theme of the Warring Kingdoms. Now, we're going to be hearing uh, some very helpful and very powerful messages in these days on the whole subject of spiritual warfare, and there will be no little emphasis on what we call the deliverance ministry, and that ministry will not only be taught about, it will also be demonstrated. But I felt this morning I would like to back up and give a more preliminary consideration to the subject of the warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. As I begin to share, I want you to keep one thing in mind, and that is uh, as we describe the nature of Satan's kingdom, and it is a powerful kingdom, uh, I want you to remember that we teach and we minister from the vantage point of a victory that's already been won. There is no question about the final outcome. Satan is a defeated foe. And we minister from the standpoint of the victory, the triumph we already have in Jesus Christ. And uh, because Satan does seem to be frightening and because his forces are powerful and because he still uh, wreaks misery and havoc on the earth, uh, it's sometimes easy for us to fall in as we wage this warfare to get discouraged or to get blue and to feel and to forget sometimes that uh, the victory has already been won. And we don't have to be afraid of this Arch enemy, uh, the old dragon, the serpent, uh, the accuser of the brethren, the devil, Satan, our adversary. 
But I just wanted to make that preliminary statement because we're going to be sharing some things about uh, the nature of the war which will indicate the extent of his deception and of his domination still in the affairs of men. Now, so we're in a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Let me read a, just a familiar passage of scripture for you which will help set the stage for what we're going to be talking about. This is the familiar passage in the sixth chapter of Ephesians where Paul has been admonishing the Christians concerning many things. And then in the last chapter, in chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. And then he goes on and lists the uh, various pieces of the armor that we have. I'm reading incidentally from the New International Version. All right, so we're in this war between two opposing kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Now one of the things we need to understand is that in any war between kingdoms, or war between nations, there is a goal in mind. The goal in mind when nations or kingdoms are warring is that the, that the victor is going to be the one who rules, the one who's vanquished. Uh, victory, the goal is victory, and the reason they want the victory is that the victor may rule or may govern. So the basic matter we have under consideration between these two warring kingdoms, the basic matter we have under consideration, the basic, uh, how shall I say it, the basic question in the earth is a question of rulership. Who is going to rule or govern the earth? Now, I realize lots of times in our Christian quest and in our desire and search to find and fulfill the will of God, we more often are taught and think in terms of it being the ultimate will of God to get us saved and to get us into heaven. And that's a very significant, very important goal. But that is not the ultimate goal. God's final, ultimate goal is not to get us into heaven. It's to establish the kingdom of heaven in the earth. And that's what we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. When, Jesus, when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, he didn't say, pray like this, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, save our souls and get us into heaven. He said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth. Thy kingdom come on thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's ultimate goal for us and for creation is that that which already exists in heaven, where everything is under perfect rule, perfect government, under perfect authority, where there is absolute submission, where there is only one will, and that is God's will, that that divine order is to come to earth. And so the basic question we are dealing with when we talk about warring kingdoms is who is going to rule in the earth? Now when Jesus came teaching and preaching, he came on the heels of John the Baptist's ministry and John began ministering, saying to, to his disciples and to the people to whom he was preaching, he came preaching a message of repentance. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Then when Jesus appeared, he saw him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He baptized Jesus in the river Jordan. 
the Spirit descended upon the Lord like a dove. Jesus came up out of the uh, waters of baptism, was driven by the, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness there, tempted 40 days by the devil, came back preaching into Galilee and sounding the same note that John the Baptist had sounded. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if you bear this in mind, that kingdom basically means government. When we speak of the king, much of the time when we talk about the kingdom of God, we think in terms of the blessings of God, the miracles and the power of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit and all of, of God's provision. And that's all right. That's an important and significant part of it. But even more important is the fact that the term kingdom signifies that there is a king and that there are subjects who are subject to his rule. So what we're talking about here is government. Uh, who is going to rule on the earth? So in this first session, we want to examine the nature of spiritual warfare of these warring kingdoms in terms of, of uh, rulership and in terms of government. And we want to address some questions like how and when did this war between the kingdoms begin? Uh, questions like uh, why did God create the devil? And uh, where did the Satan, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness originate? And who holds what territory? and perhaps even discuss a little bit the strategies, the strategy for victory and some of the personal implications of this cosmic war. And, of course, as the messages go on, we'll be exploring that more fully. Uh, perhaps this would be a point at which to share with you my intention for the four sessions that, in which I'll be speaking. I'm going to be doing one session on, after this on the, on the dangers of the occult, the whole uh, psychic, satanic realm, supernatural realm that is so fascinating and has so captured the minds and hearts of, of uh, many people. But then the other two sessions, I'm going to be dealing not so much primarily with demonic activity because that's going to be dealt with very thoroughly both from Fran and Maxwell and probably from Pauline and, and other speakers. But I'm going to be talking about two more sophisticated forms of warfare in which we are subject to the attack of the enemy. One of those having to do with the battle of the mind or of learning how to foil Satan's strategy as he strives to discourage us and to, uh, to defeat us mentally. And then the final message on the last night, unless God changes my mind in the meantime, it's my intention to share on the theme of what I call the deadliest war of all, which is a form of warfare that is so subtle and so sophisticated in which the devil has been so successful that we don't even realize, most Christians don't even realize, how totally they enter into this war on his side and not only volunteer for his army, but become his most willing recruits uh, and set out deliberately almost to destroy one another and to destroy the kingdom of God and the church. So that final night, I really don't want you to miss that. It's going to be a diff whole different approach to spiritual warfare on the theme of the deadliest war of all. Okay, now back to our message today on the warring kingdom kingdoms. I want to begin by stating three established facts uh, and then we're going to talk more about where and how the war started. There, these are three things to keep in mind as we go through our message this morning. <clears throat> Number one is this, that Satan and his cohorts rule this present earth and its governmental systems. We're talking now about the reality of the kingdom of Satan in this present life. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to read, I want to read just a few verses out of the uh, story of the temptation of Jesus. 
We just mentioned how Jesus had been baptized by John and was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness and there was tempted 40 days by the devil. I never think of that scripture passage without being reminded of how important for us it is to realize that it was the Holy Spirit who led the Lord out into the wilderness. He was not tricked out there by Satan. It was the deliberate intention of God the Father and the Holy Spirit that the Son, from the moment of being baptized and at that point where he was to begin his ministry after the Spirit descended upon him, that it was the will of the Father and of the Spirit to familiarize or to expose our Lord to the onslaught of the enemy. And he, it was the Holy Spirit that led him out into the wilderness and while he was there he was tempted 40 days by the devil. We won't develop this a lot, but also notice how the devil's temptations are always tailor-made to where our weaknesses are, or he, he tailor-makes uh, the temptation in terms of our particular abilities and responsibilities and talents and, and, and weaknesses. Uh, one of the temptations in the wilderness, uh, the first one was that uh, he said to Jesus, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, why would that be a temptation to the Lord? It's because the Lord had that ability. He had that power. He had that right. Indeed, later on, he did perform a miracle of multiplication of loaves and fishes to provide, out of a little boy's lunch, to provide food for 5,000 people. Jesus had that unique capacity, that ability. The Lord is never tempted, the, the devil has never tempted me to command stones to become bread. That's no temptation for me at all. I could just laugh at the devil if he said that to me because that's not my realm of expertise. But it was in the realm of Jesus' purpose on the earth and in the will of God for him. All right. Uh, the next temptation is the one that we are interested in. The devil took him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority, or in the King James it says power, and all splendor, King James says glory, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, this will all be yours. Now you get the picture. The Lord, the, Satan takes Jesus up onto this high mountain and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world simultaneously. It's some sort of visionary experience. We can't understand all of the details about how it took place, but anyway... Satan opened to Jesus this tremendous spiritual vista in which the Lord was able to see all of the kingdoms of the world simultaneously. And then Satan said a remarkable thing. He said, see all these kingdoms, they're mine. And I can give them to anybody I want to. And they will all be yours, all of their power and authority, all of their glory and splendor. All that goes with these kingdoms, all of that will be yours, Jesus, if you will just bow down and worship. Now, the significant thing for us to realize did not deny Satan's claim. Why? Very simply, because the kingdoms of this world influence of the wicked one. little book of 1 John, in about the fifth chapter over there, it says, John says, we know that the whole world lies in the bosom of the wicked one. Now, what the scriptures are talking about are the kingdoms of this world system, human, earthly governments that are not subject to and do not understand and even rebel against what we know to be the greatest reality, which is the kingdom of God. But he's talking here about the kingdoms or the governments of this world. And Jesus did not deny his claim because it is true. Satan is the ruler of this world system. Then later on in uh, Matthew chapter 20, where the uh, scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of demons, 
comment and he says to them, uh, how can a government or a house divided against itself cannot stand? He said, it can't be Satan casting out demons because a house or a government divided against itself cannot stand. He said, uh, if Satan, it is Satan that's casting out demons, how can Satan's kingdom stand? The Lord recognizes never of this will be driven out. John 14, 30, for the prince, that is the ruler, of this world is coming, Jesus said, and he has no hold on me. John 16, 11, the prince, or the ruler of this world, is judged. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age, this present system of things, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, with the word that's used in uh, the scriptures for prince or ruler is the Greek word archon, from which we get in our English word a term like archbishop. An archbishop is a ruling bishop. This term arch or arch is a sign of one who rules or who governs by authority. And so an archon in the scripture is one who rules. He's a prince or he's a ruler or he's a governor. And this is the term that is repeatedly referred to or is repeatedly uh, that, that Satan is repeatedly designated, designated by, that Satan is a prince or a ruler of this world. Okay, so the three facts. The fact number one is that Satan and his hierarchy, his government, his kingdom, is largely still in control of things in this earth. The fact number two is this, that the kingdom of God has invaded Satan's kingdom to challenge his rule. That's when Jesus comes preaching Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, Satan recognized that this challenge, this, the Lord who's come and began to preach this way, is that this is a challenge of his rule. And this is the reason why, in the, in the scripture we just read, that he took Jesus, in the temptations, he took Jesus up to the top of the mountain to show him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, remember in... Uh, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, in your King James Version especially, it closes that prayer uh, where Jesus says, you close the prayer this way, for thine, meaning in the Lord, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Satan, in his temptation to Jesus on that high mountain, showed him the kingdoms and the power and the glory and said it's his, said it's mine. So we need to bear this in mind that this is the nature of the war, that Satan's desire is to maintain or to keep his rulership. But the kingdom of God has invaded Satan's kingdom and has come to challenge his rule. The third fact is this, that while Satan is a defeated foe, and we already know by looking at the back of the book how everything comes out, uh, even though Satan is a defeated foe, he still occupies most of his authority, uh, most of his territory. That simply means that even though we know that Jesus has won the victory on the cross, and as we're told in Colossians, the second chapter, how Jesus is over every power and authority and dominion, principalities and powers and ruling forces, and then how he, on the cross, disarmed uh, powers and principalities and made an open show of them uh, in the earth. How we know that, Je even though we know that Jesus did has been successful and that Satan is a defeated foe. We need to remember this principle about all things concerning our spiritual inheritance, that everything which has been imputed to us by Christ's death on the cross has not been imparted to us in our experience. What is rightfully ours and what 
the Lord has given us or provided for us through his sacrifice on the cross, which means he's provided for us all things. But what is the, all of that which it is right for us to claim, we have not yet come to experience. When, uh, when God told Moses to tell the children of Israel to go in and, and uh, occupy the promised land, he said, this is the land that I have given them. It'll be their inheritance forever. Uh, the promised land, the land of Canaan, was to be and is to be the cherished inheritance of the Israelites forever. God gave it to them. It is theirs. But if the Israelites had stood on the far side of Jordan and looked over in that land and said, See, all that land is ours because God has given it to us, what they would say was true. But what did they have to do in order to claim that which God had given them? They had to enter the land and to fight the giants and all of the ites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, and all the other ites and all the other nations that were stronger than they were. But that was in their inheritance. And yet they had to drive the enemy off their inheritance. And so it is with us as we try to claim what is ours already in Jesus Christ, which has been imputed to us by his death on the cross. As we work and strive by faith, and fight the warfare to claim that victory, we are struggling to have imparted to us and come into our possession what is rightfully ours by inheritance, but which is not yet ours by possession. So what we're saying is that all that has been imputed to us or granted to us legally, doctrinally, by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross has not yet been imparted to us. We have to claim it in faith, and we have to wage the warfare to get the victory. That means simply that Satan, though he is defeated, is still active. Over in 1 Peter 5th chapter, the 8th verse, Peter warns the Christian, says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Now, this is just a very vivid picture of the current, present activity of Satan. And if we give in to that, if we fail to recognize who and what we are in Christ, then indeed Satan can devour us. And it is necessary for us to resist him steadfastly in the faith. So the warfare still rages between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. All we have to do is look at the mess the world is in today with all of the revolutions and the fightings and the terrorism and the wars that are going on and the tensions between East and West and the revolutions in third world countries and all of this kind of uh, evil goings on that continually inundate us by television and newspapers and publications makes us uh, painfully aware to what extent Satan still rules and governs in the affairs of men. And the earth in that sense is the battleground. All right, now we want to talk a little about uh, how and when the war began. I want to recommend to you a book that's out there on the book table, uh, which is called The Invisible War by Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, who passed, went on to be with the Lord some years ago. He was former Presbyterian minister, minister brilliant Bible scholar, was uh, editor of Eternity Magazine for a number of years. And this is the most scholarly and effective book I have e it's ever come into my possession that, that talks about the thing we're talking about this morning, about the nature of the warfare between the two kingdoms. And uh, so I highly recommend that book to you. I'm going to quote from him a couple of times uh, this morning. How and when did the war begin? Uh, turn with me back to the very start of scriptures, Genesis chapter 1. 
I want to share something with you now that I never heard about all the time I was in training for Bible college or seminary or for years on into the ministry. And even for a while after I got into the deliverance ministry, nobody had ever explained this truth to me, which makes so much sense about how and when <clears throat> uh, evil originated and solved so many unanswered questions about, uh, about uh, the nature of creation and about uh, the role of the devil in spiritual warfare. We, we're going to talk about what is commonly called by Bible scholars, some Bible scholars, the great interval. Now Genesis 1.1 uh, the scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the point I want to emphasize for with you now that I had never, I had years of Bible college training and seminary, and nobody ever explained this to me. And yet now it has become so clear to me in the scriptures from things I've read, my own study of scriptures, Barnhouse's book, and others who talk about this period. That is that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 is what we call the great interval, a period of time that could have been millions of years. Uh, the verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was, over, was hovering over the waters. Dr. Barnhouse says about this, that probably one of the most common errors in all biblical interpretation is the thought that the first verse in Genesis and the second verse in Genesis are closely connected in time. They are not. He said, this error leads many readers to believe that God originally created the earth in chaotic form. So we need to understand that Genesis 1-1 is a declaration in and of itself of what God did in the beginning to create the heavens and the earth. But then something else happened and the earth became uh, chaotic. It became formless. It became empty. It became dark. God did not create it that way. And what we, the way we can understand this in the scriptures is that in the Hebrew, when it says, in this verse 2, when it says the earth was formless and empty, the two Hebrew words here, the word for formless is tohu, the word for empty is bohu. And other translations of these scriptures are more accurate than the King James and some of the others because they accurately translate these words variously as waste, or desolate, or empty, or a wreck, or a ruin. Now, in, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45, and we want to insert just a single verse from that, Isaiah's comments, and then we want to restate Genesis 1-1 and Isaiah 45-18 and Genesis 1-2, and we'll get a more accurate picture of what actually took place. For this is what the Lord says, Isaiah 45, verse 18, For this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned it and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty. He did not create it tohu, but formed it to be inhabited. Now Isaiah is saying just the opposite of what Genesis 2.1.2 says. So when we put Genesis 1-1 and Isaiah 45-18 in and Genesis 1-2, this is the resulting phraseology that we get. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth, though God most certainly did not create it that way, became a wreck and a ruin, and darkness covered the face of the deep. 
Quoting Dr. Barnhouse again, he says this, that something tremendous and terrible happened to the first perfect creation is certain. We know that later the earth which had become waste and empty was reformed and refashioned in six days and peopled by the newly created beings, Adam and his wife, and that this renewed and restored earth, of which it is stated six times that God saw that it was good and once that it was very good, was later cursed on account of man's sin. We have every right to argue from analogy, therefore, that the original creation, long before Adam's remade world, was cursed because of earlier sin, fell into chaos because of the righteous judgment of God upon some outbreak of rebellion. Somewhere back before the chaos of the second verse of Genesis, there was a great tragedy and a terrible catastrophe. Now, that might not affect you the way it affected me a few years ago when I first made this discovery. It was like when I, I first uh, was introduced to this revelation. It had never been shared with me. I'd learned, like most of you, that Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 were just a part of the same story. And then to be able to come to understand that there was a great interval, perhaps millions of years, billions of years, we don't know how long, between that first introduction of creation and the first sentence, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then in that interval of time between that verse and the next, we find possible answers for all of the controversy that people have about whether or not uh, the creation was created in six literal days or whatever else. We have all of the possible explanations for things like dinosaurs and, and all of the other things that took, may have taken billions of years uh, for God to, to bring forth and to and to inhabit the earth. There is nowhere in Scripture, there's never one other indication of whether or not God, after that first verse, whether or not God instantly created all these other things or where He may have taken a million, a billion years to do it. From the time of His first perfect creation through this a long interval, what they call the great interval, when the earth became a wreck and a ruin, to where God moved again and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Notice that not only was the earth a wreck and ruin, it was dark. And the whole earth was covered by water. No living thing could have remained through all of that. But all of this is an indication of the reality of this great interval. Which brings us then to an explanation out of scriptures of what happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. What happened was the war that took place in heaven. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14 and we're going to look now at this war in heaven in which Satan or Lucifer rebelled against God and was cast out. People have said to me, as I know as they have to some of you sometimes, uh, why did God create the devil? Well, God did not create the devil. God created an archangel of great beauty and power and light and wonder and magnificence and in essence gave him rule and authority over the earth. That we need to bear in mind that Satan in the beginning, uh, Lucifer, his name wasn't Satan then, his name was Lucifer. In the beginning, uh, this archangel, as we'll see from two passages of Scripture, is, was the fourth most powerful personality in the universe. The most powerful created being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are timeless, eternal. The Trinity uh, are eternal. But this Lucifer, this archangel, perhaps may have been the most powerful and beautiful and majestic creature that God ever made. 
Now we're going to read about him in two passages of Scripture that describe his fall. In Isaiah chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. The early part of Isaiah in the chapter, Isaiah is prophesying uh, about against the king of Babylon. But so often as happens in Scripture, uh, in the midst of prophecies or statements by the prophets, these men move into a spiritual realm and begin to speak of things of a heavenly nature, either past or present or future. But they begin to speak about things in the other world. And in, we find Isaiah, as he speaks against the king of Babylon, then gets into this exalted spiritual state when he recalls, as it were, by the Spirit of God, the thing that happened when Lucifer, this archangel, fell. Beginning with verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. You are reading the King James, that's the word Lucifer, which means light bearer or light bringer. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Now the next verses explain what happened. How evil began in the world or began in the universe. About Lucifer, it is said, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. What we see here is in five of these verses, five different times, Lucifer, this archangel, this beautiful creature that was created by God, in essence perhaps to govern the whole earth, Suddenly, pride was born in him, and he began to exalt his will above the will of God. He said, he was saying to his creator, it's not what you want, it's what I want. This is what I will. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. Mountain always symbolizing authority. Uh, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, he wanted to be number one. That's rebellion. That is the... That is always the evidence of rebellion. I think we said earlier that in the beginning, and it'll eventually be that way uh, again, in the beginning there was only one will, God's will. Only one will in creation. And that's the way it was always supposed to be. That was the way it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden after God created Adam and Eve and put them there. They weren't supposed to worry about what's good and evil or right and wrong. All they had to worry about doing was doing what God told them to do. One will ruling. In the universe, there was only one will meant to, to, to rule, and that's the will of God. You want to know why evil things happen in the world? Because there is more than one will extant today. And it began with Satan, with Lucifer, saying, I will, I will, I will. Turn with me now to, to Ezekiel 28. We're going to look at another account of the, same, uh, of the same story. I want to move along because I've just got a few more minutes. All right, it's, it's almost like Ezekiel looked over Isaiah's shoulder. Or listen to him when he said what he said. Now, Ezekiel, in the early part of 28, we find him bringing a lamentation or a judgment of God against a known earthly ruler called the Prince of Tyre. And it's by, obvious by the description he talks about he was ruling the, the, uh, the city of Tyre, the, the province or district of Tyre. And then again, Ezekiel gets into this exalted spiritual state like Isaiah did and begins to bring a prophecy or a lamentation against a mythical or a supernatural spiritual figure related... Uh, Revealed as the king of Tyre. But it's obvious as we describe, as we read his description, that here he's not talking about an earthly ruler. He's talking again about Lucifer, uh, who became Satan and who became the devil. Verse 11, Ezekiel 28. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre, and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection. Now get this description of what a tremendous creature 
Lucifer, this archangel, this prince, or this ruler, the fourth most powerful personality in all the universe, what God poured into him. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were, you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. Cherub is a, a ruling angel. It's not when the literal meaning of that isn't. We think about cherubs as being the little tiny babies with wings that float around in little heavenly scenes. No, the word cherub has to do with a magnificent created angelic being that had great authority and power. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, as a ruling, as an authoritative cherub. For so I ordained you. Your King James says, I have set thee so. So this ruler, this magnificent prince, in whom God poured all of his creative genius and beauty and set him to rule over the earth. Lucifer is the one who fell. And this is how it happened. Verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. What's the wickedness? says on down in verse 17 this is what the, the thing that happened your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor so I threw you to the earth made a spectacle of you before kings by your many sins and dishonest trade you've desecrated your sanctuaries and so forth all right your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor this creature from the moment created by God in a position of government and rulership ruling over the throne on the throne of the earth, representing for whatever was on earth, uh, being that representative of God. He was a prophet and priest and king before God, as the scriptures some places call him. Some, but created from the very beginning as to be this perfect majestic ruler. But something happened that as he contemplated his own beauty, as he contemplated his authority, as he contemplated uh, his right to rule, as he contemplated his own splendor, turning inwardly and viewing himself like that, pride was born in him, as Isaiah has already described it. And basic, he basically, he became so enamored of his own person and of his own worth that he said to himself, anybody that's as beautiful and powerful and wonderful as I am deserves to be number one. And so pride was born out of that pride sin, and out of that sin, his desire to displace the Father, to displace his Creator, and to rule, to take over at the throne of God. And that, very simply, is where evil was born into the universe. Born in the heart of this great and majestic and beautiful creature that God created in the beginning to oversee the earth. God did not create a devil. But the beautiful archangel he created rebelled. And other scriptures tell us that a third of the angels in heaven rebelled with him. And for his rebellion, God cast him and those angels out of heaven, down into the earth, and blasted the earth with his judgment and with his wrath. And so then, Genesis 1-2, the earth became a wreck and a ruin. When did Satan's fall take place? Somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. This explains so many other things. We don't have time to go into it today, but this explains the possibility of where 
We don't know what that original earth was peopled with, some sort of beautiful superior race of beings. The Bible is very silent about that. But there are animations that have to do with it. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, a very interesting phrase uh, just before the flood. When men began to increase in numbers on the earth and daughters were born to them, verse 2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Down in verse 4 it says, The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also of the Nephilim were some wild and strange, weird uh, race of giants that some scholars have said may well have been the monstrous offspring of these angelic beings that fell who intermarried with earth women and gave birth to this uh, to these creatures. This could have been the kind of thing that could have happened in that first interval, in that first thing that caused God to judge and to blast the earth. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, and this thing repeating itself is the very reason the danger of the earth becoming uh, almost totally demon-possessed by the intermarriage of these sons of God, these angelic beings that were somehow cohabiting with the women of the earth. And this is the basis for all kinds of things in Greek and Roman mythology where those gods uh, took earthly wives and so forth. God was so incensed at this that he said, the whole thing has become so rotten, I'll wipe it out. And so he sent the flood and only Noah and his family were saved. This could well have been a repetition of the kind of thing that happened when the first creation had to be blasted by the judgment of God as a result of, of uh, Satan's fall. It could also be an explanation, the remnants of whatever these first creatures were, the remnants of that could be the origin of what we call demons or evil spirits. Uh, a man named W.A. Pember wrote a beautiful book, very important book years ago called Earth's Earliest Ages, in which he handles some of the same things that, uh, that Barnhouse handles in his book. But Pember and other authorities have suggested that the origin of these demons, that they were, that they are the spirits of a pre-Adamic race that were under that first creation and it was blasted and destroyed by God, but the spirits live on because there's something in the nature of the demons that makes them seek to be enclosed in some bodily form. It's the nature of demons to want to inhabit a human body and gratify their appetites through that human body, which would be some indication at least or a suggestion that at one time they did have a body in which they inhabited. So there are intimations in Scripture like this and others that clearly point to and verify the point that we've been making about that great interval between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. When God was forced because of Satan's rebellion uh, and cast him out and to blast the earth with his judgment, and then in time by his spirit move on the face of a wrecked and ruined creation and began the recreation process in six days of uh, building and rebuilding and rearranging things in the earth and eventually putting men there. You remember in the, there's a very interesting phrase in uh, Genesis chapter 1 when God creates man and woman and puts them on the earth in uh, Genesis 1, 27 and 28 it says God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them. And in your King James Version, it says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply uh, in the earth. And uh, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. How many of you here are reading the King James? So you notice that word, replenish the earth. You ever thought that's a rather strange word? Uh, modern version, just say fill. But you know what that word replenish means in the dictionary definition? 
It doesn't speak about doing something for the first time. To replenish the earth means to fill it again or to build it up again. When you replenish something, the supply has run out or is gone and you desire to replace what was once there. When a person replenishes his store of goods, he's building back up his inventory. He is replacing something that has been lost. And so there is in this uh, a strong suggestion, implication in this very verse that God is saying to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and people the earth once more. Which will be an indication of what happened. So I trust the things we've been shared will help lay, that we've been sharing will help lay a philosophical, theological background for your understanding about the nature of the war. I want to close just with a quote from Pember in his Earth's Earliest Ages to remind us again of the fact that Satan currently is still the one to the greatest extent who is ruling and governing things here. But that the kingdom of God has come and has been established and the work is underway to dislodge Satan from all of his kingdom. This is a quote from Pember's Earth Earliest Ages. Such then is the picture set before us in the word of God. The whole earth divided into provinces by the prince of this world and systematically governed and administered under his direction by his viceroys with their officers and subordinates in countless numbers. This would be the devil and all of his angels. This organization perfect in itself but continually disturbed by interferences from a mightier power, that is God, for the protection of individuals, of churches, and occasionally of whole nations. Satan told Jesus, see these kingdoms, they're mine, and they'll all be yours if you bow down and worship me. But we know who it is that is the ultimate ruler in the earth. For Jesus said about the Father, thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen.